Hello, and welcome back to Miss D's Lunacy. Today, we're going to have a conversation strictly about airports, which, as you know, can actually drive oneself crazy. And as a result, I have some funny stories how to get around the crazy. They tell you to go to one counter. They tell you to go to another one. Then they tell you, no, your plane's delayed. It's gate number two. No, it's gate 12. And you feel like a chicken without your head on. So they are very frustrating events, and I absolutely particularly understand perfectly that there are hundreds of stories out there. And I've already had one in my first podcast about starting an alarm and having it been arrested. But now I have one that is awfully naughty, I have to say, but very clever. <laughs> so here goes. This was about 15 years ago. And I was in California visiting a wonderful friend who had rented a house in Malibu. And it was wonderful, very nice vacation. And after about a week, I came back to the LA airport. And as I'm just arriving and paying the driver and everything, about 800 people come flocking out of the airport. And I'm looking around in complete astonishment, going, what's going on? And a friend of mine called Eric Javits, who actually is very famous, he designs shoes, hats, purses, wonderful friend, was sitting outside. And so I approached him and I said, my dear friend, I'm so glad you're here. I said, what's going on? He said, well, They've evacuated the airport because there's been a suspicious machine. What is it called? Computer that was left unattended. I said, oh, heavens to Betsy, how are we ever going to get back in? And so we watched the floods of people, 800 people or so, coming out. We're sort of standing around waiting for them to give us access back inside. And I said, Eric, do you realize that we're going to have to stand in line for two and a half hours because we're going to have to all file in one by one? I said, I refuse. So I said, let's go check out how we can get back in, in the airport. So we obviously soon we heard that there's going to be allowance to go back in the airport. It took about an hour. And so I have my companion, and I say, come on, let's go look. So we see the airline stewardesses and all the pilots, and they seem to have exactly know where they're going. So I go, follow them. So we go like little kids, and we follow. And unfortunately, you have to have a pass to go on the elevator that they're going on. So I said, well, shoot, we can't do that because we don't have a pass, and we don't have the right credentials. So I turned around the corner, and I said, listen. We need a wheelchair. I know what we're going to do. We're going to snag a wheelchair. Would you like to mind being in it? He said, absolutely not. I said, start limping. So we're now looking for a wheelchair. But they're unfortunately occupied, and we can't find a single empty one. So I said, well, I've got it under control. And I pushed the elevator button because wheelchair access are the only ones that have priority. So I said, follow my lead. So I pushed the elevator button, and the first person that happens to be in the wheelchair is this wonderful woman. And I said, my dear woman, I'm going to take you up. Your person seems to have gotten lost, but you're good to, I'm going to take you right where you need to be. She's looking around, has no idea what's going on. I said, you'll be just well taken care of. We jump into the elevator. Eric is looking at me with saucers in his eyes going, what are you doing? I said, just leave it to me. So we go up all the way right in front of everything, right up there, and there's the line of 800 people that haven't even gone through security yet. And I said, you see, Eric, they're still waiting. And I turned to the lady, and I put her behind the wall next to the wall, and I said, now, somebody will come get you right away. You just sit tight, my dear. We are the first two in the security line. And we were like high-fiving, and he goes, you are really good at this. I said, honey, I don't wait for nothing. So, of course, we had absolutely nothing to do for the next two hours. We were served by the first person. I mean, there was nothing. To, there were 800 people they had to reprocess. Planes were delayed, and we were, like, bouncing around. It was like we had our own private airport to play in. It was a blast. I think he was very proud of me because we certainly didn't want to sit around. So those are called sneaky things that one has to do. 
Okay, go forwards 20 years, right? And I've already figured out that when there's a problem, the one thing you got to do is get yourself a wheelchair. I had spent Christmas with my mother on the 25th of December in New York, and I was giving a party for New Year's Eve four days afterwards, or five days. Our plane was to depart on the 26th, so we arrive in New York in the middle of a snowstorm. And I'm kidding, not. It was a big snowstorm. We caught the last bus because we decided to go to the movies. We caught the last bus, and then all of a sudden there was no traffic, no cars, no taxis, no buses. My apartment had no internet, I had no cell phone, and I don't know how to reach anybody because I can't get to the airport, A, airport's closed, no planes flying, and my dear, dear neighbor, wonderful friend, who had written a book on Cary Grant, who I had the pleasure to meet, but that's another story, she gave me access, and she'd give, I absolutely no food, nothing, I had nothing there, because we were staying, planning on staying there. One day, still there, two days, still there. Three days, still there. I'm thinking, my goodness gracious. And we kept going to her telephone and talking to her travel agent. And she would make us these wonderful Swedish cones. And we'd we'd come over for breakfast. And she was so nice. And she kept helping us because nobody could go anywhere. I mean, it was really bad. Finally, she found us at an astronomical price, an airfare first class to Orlando. That was the only thing arriving on the 30th, which was, of course, the day before my big party and I'm rather nervous and now I have to drive from Orlando all the way to Palm Beach to have my guests so I'm trying to orchestrate everything from a completely different town but it seemed to have worked out thank goodness so um, I said to my friend I said look you're in the wheelchair or I'm the wheelchair I said but we're, we're gonna have to use one we're never gonna get through an airport that now has been closed for four days the mayhem will never get there he said, well, out of pride, I'm not going in the wheelchair. I said, make yourself perfectly happy. I'm going in the wheelchair. And I had pulled a muscle tendon in my thumb from doing too much exercises. So I was wearing sort of a hand wrist band on my hand, which looked rather like I'd broken my hand, which looked good, right? I thought, well, hey, you know. And then I have always carry with me these masks that you wear. Asian people wear them very often in planes if they think they're going to get a cold. So equipped with that, I'm in the car and we... He gets out of the car and I said to him, would you please get a wheelchair? So out I come in my fur coat with my little wrist bandage and my little thing around my mouth. And the man is a little worried, the, the fellow who's pushing, wheeling me around. And so he now didn't say anything. And we arrive at JFK. Well, we just get swooped right through. There's lines everywhere. Poof, no problem. We get right through security, everything else. And the man sort of looks at my friend and says, what's wrong with her? And just a joke, he said, well, she has leprosy, which is completely idiotic. I mean, really. So we're standing there, and as we're at front of the gate, and we did get there, there so early, we waited 20 minutes, and you could see people sort of walking back and walking away because they were like, something's wrong with this person. We don't want to catch it. And so, we were, and so he kept saying, well, you know, I'm getting tired. Can I sit in your wheelchair? I said, you decided no wheelchair. It's mine. So... I was thrilled because he was standing going, oh, my God, there's no place to sit. So I had kind of a good time. But people were getting very nervous around me because they just didn't know what was wrong with me. But we managed to make it, and we managed to make the festivities, and it was quite a story. So as I say, if you're ever in a panic, use that silly wheelchair. It works just great. Okay, so they wheel me on the plane, 
And I'm fine. And I get into my first class seat, take off my mask, take off everything, my coat and everything. And people are sort of going right by me, right by me, right by me. And sort of looking, going, well, she doesn't look so sick. And so just to annoy everybody, I got up after everybody was on the plane and we were all taking off and sort of wandered around just to make sure that people weren't too freaked out and without any of my masks. But that was quite funny. And I did say we had a giggle. So here we have another airport story, which is also hysterical. And it involved many years ago, I was supposed to be at two weddings and they were one day after the next and I had to be a bridesmaid in one. So I had to make the second wedding and I went to the rehearsal dinner of the first wedding from New York to Philadelphia. Well, we were young and crazy. The dinner was absolutely wild. We were in this crazy sort of Holiday Inn type hotel. Everybody was drinking like crazy. My roommate, Sam, got she got stuck, locked in the bathroom. We were all walking out on the on the uh, roof, which I think is absolutely insane. And the wedding that I was going to the next day as a bridesmaid was in uh, Indiana. And my cousin was a designer at the time, and we were wearing uh, cowboy boots and little sort of gingham skirts and looked really kind of silly. And they were taking my boots and drinking champagne out of them. It's amazing I didn't lose a shoe. So the whole night went on much further than we thought. And, of course, when we woke up in the morning, I had missed the good old-fashioned plane to make to the wedding. So a friend of mine, who's absolutely nutso, he's in a bathing suit, I think barefoot without a shirt. I don't know what he was wearing. Throws me into the car and throws me to the airport. And this is way back before security and anything else. And these airports in Philadelphia was not that big at the time. So he's wandering around. And we're trying to figure out how to get me from Philadelphia to Indiana, Evansville, which is not so easy. And I couldn't believe the amount of nice people we met. They said, now, you look, young lady, you're going to go to Nashville. And then we're going to just get you a little crop prop plane. And we're just going to throw you into a field as close as possible as where you're supposed to be. I was thinking, well, this is just peachy keen. How are they going to do that? So I get on this tiny little plane to Nashville, and I have still the same croaky voice that I had back then. So I must have thought, well, this girl was on a gig, and the plane was so tiny that it was rocking around. Of course, I got very, very ill and was stuck in the bathroom for most of the time, but they had already called ahead. This is how private you could really get back in the day when there wasn't so much traveling. They had called the airfield asked them to get me to the VIP lounge in Nashville where all the rock stars go, and then order this little crop prop plane to get me shooting off to where I was supposed to go. I couldn't believe the organization these people were doing. So I'm rocking around looking for aspirin and trying to manage that I am actually going to make this poor cousin of mine's wedding late, and I keep quiet because I'm feeling really nauseous. We land. They take me out first. They escort me into the Rockstar Lounge, and I was thinking, wow, I wonder who's going to be sitting in there. But I think it was too early in the morning for them to be awake. They probably were sleeping, which is what I would have liked to have done. And I find this pilot, I mean, out of the blue, they go, oh, here's your little plane, dear. Now you just come on with me. It's going to be a little noisy, and we're just going to get you to Indiana. So we were calling through the airport to tell everybody that I was going to be late, but I was going to come as soon as I could, and he gave the coordinates to the hotel where he would be able to drop me then I sent a truck to get me I've never seen anything so magnificent I was in awe the help people gave me the kindness they were so nice and sure enough I get on this little two-seater crop plane and brrr, off we go now my headache is pounding to a you have no idea because the sound of the airplane is very very loud 
And sure enough, there's a little truck there waiting for me near a field, probably about 20 minutes away from where I was supposed to be. And I had to sort of zip into there, throw on my little outfit. And my cousin was very, very sweet, very grateful, and I held up the wedding. But I didn't do any harm. But it was quite a story of getting from A to B to C. And if you had to do that today, it would be far more complicated. So I just thought it was hysterical, frankly, because also the help that I got, everybody was so kind. Now I have to go backwards again. And this is when I was first starting a jewelry business back in the day in my late 20s. And a friend of mine had started a company in Florida. But I decided since I didn't live here full time and I traveled so much, I could do it in Europe, in New York and everywhere that I traveled in the world. And I would start buying these incredible lines of jewelry, and I had friends everywhere, and I would travel extensively. Now, most of the East Coast, I could do it by car. But over the years, I had amassed quite an enormous amount of jewelry, and I would buy these wonderful cases. There were metal cases, which had locks on them, and they had drawers in them, and they pretty much looked like camera equipment or what uh, people would use if they had multiple guns or production companies, which sort of looked like they were for um, cameras and tripods. And they were very sturdy, and I would travel with all of these large suitcases. And I realized, wait a second, you're only allowed two suitcases per. So I would go to Houston where I would have shows. I would go to Aspen. So I was able to actually do pleasure and business at the same time. And I ended up wandering all over the place with this wonderful things, but I had to figure out how I was going to get six suitcases on a plane when technically you're allowed only two. This is back in the day where there were no cell phones and there were only porters because they didn't have check-ins or anything like that. So this was my idea. It was a cute one, by the way. And I would arrive looking very flustered in my fake Chanel skirt and my little flats at the porter. And I would arrive with all of this masses of things. And I said, listen, young man, I'm in trouble. I'm working for Vogue and the photographer and the models and the editor are already on the plane. And if I don't get their suitcases on the plane at this very instant, I'm going to get fired and I'm going to start to cry. And you can't possibly not let me do this. But they're going to fire me. Well, everybody is really kind. And they're like, I'm not going to have you fired, my dear young lady. Please give me your six and seven pieces of equipment. Please let me help you. And I give the fellow $10. And I said, I'm very sorry, but I'm really in a bad mood because I, I don't want to get fired. And the models and everybody, and I just made such a story. So I traveled that way for years, which was really, really naughty. But I had no other way of being, I didn't have enough money. So I always took with me a jewelry case with me that had about four drawers because it was really the really good stuff. And I couldn't put it in the plane in case it just disappeared. So I would sit in my seat very quietly and I'd had it on my lap. Now, you know, a plane has no exits and no entrances when you're in the air, which now means I have an entire 250 people's attention all to myself. So I start opening the drawers in my little case. It looks like a doctor's case, except it has drawers. And I start looking at the jewelry with the lady next to me. She says, my goodness gracious, that's beautiful. She passes the tray down the line. She passes another one up front. All of a sudden, I'm running around with a little pad, and I sell about eight to $1,000 worth of jewelry because people cannot go anywhere. And they are now passing the time, giving them the most beautiful luxury of shopping on air with the stuff. And I would just get it all right, and I'd had my little machine, and I'd take checks and everything. And, you know, when the stewardesses, after they serve the drinks, they sit down usually. So I was walking around, 
And I tell you, I'd have more fun. And flying to me was exciting as could be because it paid for my plane ticket round trip, you see, plus a few expenses. And I had the attention of the entire plane. They loved it. They tried it on. I had a little mirror in my pocket. I'd give it to them. I'd say, oh, try this, dear. It goes with your outfit. Well, these women and they didn't have anything else to do. They had two and a half hours, three hours to waste. It was a blast. And I can tell you, I did this forever. And when I was going to dinner parties and when I was going to regimes, I'd have five pairs of earrings in my pocket. And I would wear a pair of earrings with a tag, a price tag. And I'd say hello to all my friends. And they'd say, Dion, you have a tag on your earrings. And I said, yes, darling, they're for sale. Aren't they beautiful? I said, why don't you try them on? They try them on and they say, they're really pretty. I said, I'll send you the bill tomorrow. And I'd go to the next table before, put on another pair, since obviously my first pair had disappeared. And I would do the exact same thing again. Within three hours, I had sold $1,500 worth of jewelry. And let me tell you, I never had to lie down for it. It was brilliant. And I'd put everything on a little cocktail napkin and I'd come home and I'd start scribbling everybody and I'd write little thank you notes and little lovely please bills and it was, you know, stamped with little stamps and it was so chic. And I actually got paid by my friends, which was quite a miracle. So I had a great business going. And then a friend of mine who was very, very, very clever and very beautiful. And I mean, had a wardrobe like Cher. I mean, she really dressed so spectacularly. Most incredible taste I've ever known. And I said to her, listen, darling, I have some surplus of jewelry. Here's a case. I said, come back in two weeks and let me know what you've done. She said, fine, this sounds like fun. She didn't have a job at the time. She didn't need one, really. So she goes off with her jewelry case and I don't hear from her for two weeks. She comes back after about two and a half weeks and hands me a check for $30,000. I said, what did you do? She said, well, it was simple. I had my luncheons and my dinners with my girlfriends. I then would go back to their apartment. We'd smoke cigarettes in their bedroom, and I would take out their wardrobe, and I would assort the earrings according to their clothes. And I sold every single thing, and I need another case. And I've got to go. I'm busy. And I went, whoa. This girl was so full of pep and personality, she had sold the entire case and a half. It was all gone in two and a half weeks. I said, you are now my full-time partner. I could not believe this girl. Of course, she got bored after a month. She'd sold everything, and she went on to something else. But she was absolutely fabulous. And everybody wore my stuff. And as a result, I had these wonderful shows. They were trunk shows back in the day, which, as you know, they were very common. They're not so common, but, I mean, you could do Chanel. You could do all sorts of things. And they were fun. They were social gatherings. You could have cocktails and tea sandwiches. And then I would introduce different collections, people who did hats. And another friend of mine, Mrs. Noel, who did beautiful smock dresses for children. So we had, like, an entire boutique. We had purses and jewelry and all these things. And people would come over and do their Christmas shopping or their valentine's parties or their birthday parties or summer stuff and so we had shows all the time i did the hamptons classic i did the junior league shows i went uh, to my old school in westchester and did their shows where they had vineyard vines which before they never had a store so people were buying them like crazy and i sold so much and i made so many friends and of course people would call me i would fix them because i became very good at fixing jewelry and then a friend of mine was walking in atlanta and stared at tiffany and there was my photograph she said what are you doing in that frame i said well sorry they picked my photo i was in town and country and i didn't mean to she was so amazed and then i started getting a stalker letter 
which was my first, somebody saying that he'd seen my photo and he, I was so beautiful and he wanted to get to know me. Well, I got a bit panicked. I thought, how in the world did he find my address? I mean, I guess we were in the phone book back in the day. But it was my first and only, but it did get me very nervous because people now, of course, they're famous, not me, but uh, they'd get stalker letters. So um, maybe that was a good thing or maybe not such a good thing. But it was quite, quite fun because people to this day tell me that they still own some of my jewelry and they really loved it. I was very proud of that. But I'm prouder of my show and proud of the things that I can tell you. And I hope you enjoyed my stories. But I want to tell my audience that if you have a story, which I know everybody does, Please, please, please comment on my Facebook and let me know what your stories are. And some of them I will air with your name. And it would be such a great way to sort of communicate with you and tell your friends that you're going to be on the air and tell me the stories of your airport tragedies, which are hundreds. I'm sure there was a story of a lady who had t they stole her stiletto uh, heels because they were guns. Remember that whole fracas about somebody had designed guns for stilettos. I mean, people have leave their air their 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 passports. Their, anyway, please share with me any comments you have about airport stories because some of them actually had a friend who was arrested. You'll never know. You just never know what can happen. So I want to hear from my audience and let you know that I am on your side, and if they're good stories, I will air them for you, and we can all share and participate. Very funny joke to my dear audience. Two Irish nuns have just arrived to the USA by boat, and one says to the other, I hear that the people in this country actually eat dogs. Odd, her companion replies, we shall live in America. We might as well do as the Americans do. Nodding emphatically, the mother superior points to a hot dog vendor and they both walk towards the cart. Two dogs, please, says one. The vendor is only too pleased to oblige, and he wraps them both hot dogs in foil and hands them over. Excited, the nuns hurry over to a bench and begin to unwrap their dogs. The mother superior is first to open hers. She begins to blush and then, staring at it for a moment, leans over to the other nun and whispers cautiously, Which part did you get? <laughs> Another Irish joke, it's called an Irishman's philosophy. There are two things to worry about. Either you are well or you are sick. If you are well, then there's nothing to worry about. But if you are sick, there are two things to worry about. Either you will get well or you will die. If you get well, there's nothing to worry about. If you die, there are only two things to worry about. Either we'll go to heaven or hell. If you go to heaven, there's nothing to worry about. But if you go to hell... You'll be so damn busy shaking hands with your friends, you won't have time to worry. And that's the philosophy. Now, we're about to close, but I'd like to give you a funny little joke, which is actually quite clean but very sweet. And there's a little boy who comes home from school. He's very young, and he always looks for his mother to give him a glass of milk and cookies. And one day, he can't find her. So he's walking around everywhere, and then he decides to tiptoe up to her room. And he sees his mother stark naked in front of a mirror, touching herself, going, I want a man, I want a man. Well, he's completely confused, doesn't know what she's doing, he's too young. So a couple days go by, he comes running back, where's my milk and cookies, gotta tell my mother about my drawing, and again, he can't find her, so he goes creeping up to her room, and somehow she's lying in bed naked with a man. He starts to scratch his head, goes, something's funny around here. Then he has a brilliant idea, and he runs to his room, takes off all his clothes, stares at his mirror and rubs himself all over and says, I want a bicycle. I want a bicycle. <laughs>
Ah, the childhood naivete. Thank you, my friends, for listening. Until soon, lead us not into temptation. We can find it ourselves. God bless.